Tracked and Traced is sponsored by the Pulitzer Center. The Pulitzer Center raises awareness of underreported global issues by supporting quality journalism across all media platforms with a unique program of education and public outreach. Learn more at pulitzercenter.org. All right. So the question is, hypothetically, if you were being um, live streamed in your day-to-day life every single day, um, what do you think the scariest part of that experience would be for you personally? Maybe the sleeping part, because I already feel like somebody's watching, but knowing that somebody is watching would be more scarier. I guess I would say somebody watching me eat. I feel like that's weird. (laughs) I mean, I probably would act different if I'm always being watched. The scariest part is making one mistake and everyone would be against you for it. Oh, definitely if I did something stupid. I'm really clumsy, so I could see myself falling or maybe even getting a parking ticket. And I think if people were watching the live stream, I'd be really embarrassed by some stuff I do. What would be the scariest part of that experience for you and um, why? Having sex. Because, like, uh, people are going to watch me have sex and I would feel really uncomfortable, like, if other people would see me having sex. Yeah. Um, the scariest part of my life being live streamed 24-7 is literally just having, like, no privacy to do anything because at that point, like, any type of mess up that you make, people are going to see. So, like, it could be something as little as, I don't even know, like, I don't know, like, I leave something on the stove too long or something like that, and then people will be watching that, like, oh, yeah, like, her house going to burn down or whatever. Like, you feel like you're irresponsible at that point. So, it's like, it's always just going to be something that somebody could judge you on, for real. And then um, one follow-up as well. Um, So do you follow anybody on the internet um, that kind of does live stream their life? And if so, do you find that sort of thing interesting to watch or no? Uh, Not particularly. I mean, like, if it's somebody who's, like, live streaming, it's, like, kind of the TikTok breakdowns of, like, the 30 seconds of the most interesting parts of their day. Um, That's kind of fun. But, like, there's so much boring stuff, and it's not really worth the time to follow somebody's live stream (laughs) 24-7. I absolutely don't. (laughs) And I absolutely would not want to watch that. No. (laughs) Thank you. Hey, everyone. I'm Antoine Scott. And I'm Natasha T. Miller. And this is Tracked and Traced, a podcast about surveillance technology and how it affects you. Today, we're going to change up the course a little bit and talk about something that we haven't before. We often have approached surveillance from the aspect of the government or police surveilling us. But there's a flip side. We also surveil ourselves and each other. A lot of this happens online, and we don't even think about it. It's just part of our lives. Like for me, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. And when I think about it, I'm taking parts of my life and putting it out there for anyone to watch me. And while I'm at it, when I follow people, aren't I actually surveilling them in a way? So today, we're going to talk about how we invite other people to watch us. And there's a word for this. It's surveillance. We'll explore this idea a lot more, but for now, it's good to know that Sue replaces sir in surveillance, meaning from below, instead of from above. So surveillance means to watch from below. Later on, we'll talk to Hassan Alahi, who decided to confront government surveillance by doing something that I probably would never do. And that's emailing an FBI agent every day. But first, Shamin Sultana set out to learn what happens when we put our lives online. Ever wonder who the first live streamer was? Jennifer Ringley, better known as Jenny, was the first person to live stream her life. 
It was 1996. She was your typical 19-year-old college student, filming her uneventful college dorm life in Pennsylvania with a computer webcam 24-7. Jenny's site got 7 million views in one day at its peak, which, for the 1990s, is pretty impressive. Here she is on David Letterman in 1998. Our next guest is the creator of the very popular Jenny Cam website, which televises uh, the life inside her apartment 24 hours a day, live on the internet. Please welcome Jenny Cam's own Jenny. Jenny. Thank you very much for being here. Not a problem. Now, now is this deal we're doing right here, is this also te televised on the Jenny Cam? Have you got a camera on you somehow? Actually, right now, what you get to see is my empty apartment. So, see, so it's just exactly, this is life. This is your life. When you're there, you're there. When you ain't there, you ain't there. Exactly. You know, I want to tell you something. This, to me, is like the perfect idea for the internet, don't you think? I think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you look around on the internet, there's there's so much that it, like, as far as broadcasting goes, is just like TV on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I think what it needs is to have something that's made for the medium. This will replace television, as we know it now. This will replace <laughs> television, because this is really all people want. Just... Jenny Kim is a distant memory now, and Jennifer Ringley has since gone completely offline. But it's incredible to think how far we've come. At this point, sharing our interests, our relationships, our successes and our failures is an everyday act. Our phones have not one, but several cameras on them. Our doorbells are cameras. Our computers, cameras. Baby monitors, cameras. But what happens when we turn the cameras on ourselves, like Jennifer Ringley did? When we invite other people to watch us, can we actually strengthen the bonds that tie us? To find out, I called Ame Kataria, a Chicago-based visual artist. Ame explores that idea in a piece of performance art he calls Mom, I Am Safe. So the piece actually came to be uh, last year during the peak of COVID. Uh, so on March 27th, uh, Chicago went into a lockdown and all the buildings were closed. Uh, so I was confined into my apartment and it was basically, we didn't really know for how long it's going to be like that. This was the first wave of COVID in the United States, and Ame's parents in India were getting worried. And my mom basically just said uh, this one line that I can never forget, but she said that, wish we could see you more often. Um, and I think that kind of triggered this idea in my head uh, about removing this uh, obstacle of communication that, I, that they and, and I have with each other, which is to kind of take the initiative and call each other or FaceTime or something. But whereas they could kind of see me um, uh, more regularly and know that I'm okay. So Ame got to work and set up a makeshift live stream. He put up a wide-angle camera in the corner of his living room, inviting his parents in India to check in on him via the live stream 24-7. Initially, I just shared it with my, with my parents um, and with my immediate family, some cousins who were living in other parts of the world. And uh, eventually I shared it with the entire world within like a three, three to four week period. Ame didn't know what to expect from the project. He just wanted to solve a problem with the technology available to him. In the beginning, it was actually a little strange and I felt extremely vulnerable when I was doing this project. Firstly, because I didn't really know what the reaction would be like. It's almost like looking at yourself in the mirror um, constantly. Eventually, Ame got used to the camera, and the discomfort he felt gave way to a new perspective on this whole self-surveillance thing. That was an interesting use of surveillance for me because normally in surveillance, the observer and the observed are two different things. That's what surveillance really is, to, for the observer to keep track on the observed. 
here the observer and the observed uh, both kind of dissolved eventually when when they both were the same. What Ami is describing here is surveillance, which literally translates to watching from below in French. The prefix sur, meaning above, is replaced with su. Canadian engineer Steve Mann defines surveillance as the recording of an activity by the participant in the activity. Sometimes a streamer or influencer produces content to get as many views or followers as possible. But Ame wasn't focused on his reach. I never collected the views, so I have no idea how many people visited the website. He was, however, interested in connecting with the people who were watching the live stream. So he added a function where anyone viewing his live stream could send him a message. That message would automatically be sent to a printer in his apartment. In just a couple of months, Ami received about 400 messages. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were a bunch of them, uh, but I have like some which are around me. Uh, Hi, Ami, thinking of you. Have a fruitful day, dear son. Uh, I mean, Ame, you're looking like chitti kukri, which is like a like a Hindi word for like, just pretty. <laughs> so I think that's probably my mom. But as with almost anything on the internet, the reactions were mixed. People criticized it, saying that, is this even safe? Why are you doing this? Is This is like, are you like... I, I trying to like get attention or something, and I mean I didn't really pay attention to that uh, because it was it was almost like it was developed for a very specific thing uh, to solve a very specific problem. I think the the biggest purpose behind making it public was to kind of demonstrate that okay something like this can be used, something like this we can rethink about surveillance in a more radical way. Ame's experience with Mom, I am safe led him to rethink his ideas on privacy too. I definitely respect my privacy a little bit more. I remember once the project was ended, it was like a little bit of a sigh of relief that I don't have to like maintain things. Uh, I don't have to be a little conscious about whenever I'm in that space to know that I'm, I'm being looked at. So it definitely was a transition when the project ended. It was a change. Um, but I mean, the phase in which it was happening, that was also like an exciting phase for me because... Uh, it opened like doors of vulnerability for me, which is always like a little bit like it, it you know, it kind of gives you an adrenaline, adrenaline rush. So I think that that period of time was exciting for me. As for live streaming in the future, Ame, like Jennifer Ringley, says he's had enough for now. While Ame's experience was overwhelmingly positive, most people don't stream themselves as a kind of performance art challenging the idea of observed and observer. They just want to share a part of themselves with the world. So for your average YouTuber or streamer, what happens when you invite people in to watch you from anywhere? What happens when you go viral? To find out, I chatted with content creator Ila Oaken, known as Crazilla on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Okay, so um, I'm from Congo, Kinshasa, and I am an environmental scientist. I came in Japan in 2017 to do my master's in environmental sciences, uh, graduated and started working in Japan. And then I started my PhD again in April of this year. In her free time, Ila produces content mainly on environmental issues, her life in Japan, and other people's experiences living in Japan. Ila says content creation helps her express her innate creativity and battle feelings of isolation that she experiences living in a foreign country. In 2021, Ila posted a TikTok video about excessive plastic packaging in Japan. As with many of her videos, she wanted to raise environmental awareness. But this time, her video got a lot more attention than usual. 
On this particular day, Ila was recording herself doing everyday things, waking up, taking the train, grocery shopping. So while I'm recording my fruit, I was like, okay, I need to, I want to, to, to make some steak today. Okay, let me just buy some piece of meat. But this was my first time to go to the butcher because I always buy frozen meat. I was like, okay, let me try this. But Ila noticed something unusual about the way her meat was being packaged. So she did what any environmentally conscious influencer would do. She started recording and later posted the video on TikTok with the caption, Why though? Crying emoji. Hashtag stop single-use plastic. Hashtag stop plastic pollution. Hashtag life in Japan. Hashtag Japan loves plastic. With the song Oh No by Creepa playing over the video, Ila zooms in on a grocery worker placing two pounds of meat wrapped in plastic saran wrap on the counter. He puts the meat in a plastic container. And then another plastic bag. And then another one. The words plastic number four, stop, flash in red over the video, followed by distressed emojis. So when I posted it, I expected it to be like my YouTube. I said, okay, people don't really care about environmental stuff. They're on TikTok for entertainment, the same as YouTube. So let me just see what it is. I don't know. And then the second day, I saw 500,000 views. I'm like, what is going on here? Views on the video didn't stop there. Within a few days, they hit a million, then two million, then three million views. This is too much. So I'm telling my friend who told me to open that TikTok account that I think I think this video is going viral. And she's the one who's fluent in Japanese. She's like, okay, let me let me go check that out. And when she checked it, she was like, oh my God, this, this is gonna bring you so many nationalists and so much hatred. I was like, really? Why? Because I'm just telling the truth. I thought they see it the way I see it. And you can imagine what the comment section looked like. (laughs) Ila doesn't read kanji, Japanese characters. So her friend read most of the comments for her, but some were in English. And you know, uh, people with small mind, they don't discuss ideas, they discuss people. So they went through my, my, my image and they were... Uh, racist comment, obviously. They were like, yeah, if you don't like Japan, just leave Japan. Uh, anyway, we don't, we don't use much plastic because we recycle it. Japan does recycle some of its plastic, about 14%, but it also burns a large portion of it. So they were, they called me ignorant. They called me, uh, 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 what's that, the insults for Black people that they love using... Um, uh, monkey, they say, get out of this country. And some people were like, I'm shocked that a black person can dare talk about stuff like this. You're criticizing Japan and you're black. How even dare you? Despite all of the personal attacks, there was some support for Ila too. Then there was one guy who is in, I think he lives in Osaka, who kept defending me, defending me again and again. He took his time responding to everyone and stating fact that this is fact. People don't see those facts because what they saw is someone is insulting Japan and you just don't do that. For the most part, Ila says she laughed off a lot of the negativity, but some of it got to her. The comments that affected me were the one that was under other type of video that I made and where my face were on. And for this ones, I decided to uh, erase everything that was showing my face. So that affected me because I did. Uh, I know that racism, even if you try to avoid it, you can avoid uh, something about science because these are facts. But when it comes to your race or your appearance, it affects you straight away because you cannot change it. That's who you are. 
Because the backlash was now spilling over into her other accounts, she erased the video and decided to separate them. One for personal use that she would actually appear on, and another new account where she would only talk about environmental issues, but never show her face. Ila says the experience has changed her views on privacy and what she posts. So I thought that uh, there are certain things. I mean, as a black person, the society is not is still not ready to accept the fact that a black woman in Japan can say negative things about Japan. So yeah, it it taught me a lot about how I present myself online and how I want people to perceive me online. So yeah, I'm still learning, of course, a lot about it. When asked if she has advice to other YouTubers or live streamers, Ila says drawing boundaries between online and real life is important. The, the line is very blurry. You start forgetting. I found myself, when I do a lot of TikTok that week, I found myself thinking TikTok when I'm outside. I'm like, when I see something, I see it as a potential content, and I don't want to be like that. So the line is very blurry and we need to keep ourselves real. We need to be closer to people that are real instead of trying to be close to people that are in our phone. And when it comes to privacy, people people shouldn't forget that we are, at the end of the day, influencers are the one who choose what they want to present or not. It's your choice. You make it. And the moment you decide that uh, you post this or that, you need to... Um, how to say, expect the consequences. You really need to be prepared. As an adult, you need to understand the the price of your choice. Ela's thriving on social media now, but with some new boundaries and a better awareness of what could happen if she ever goes viral again. That was Shamin Sultana reporting. WDET celebrates 75 years of public radio with gratitude to our dedicated listeners. Listeners like you cherish community voices, local music, and independent journalism. This spring fundraiser, we're counting on your support, just as you count on us. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. Amay and Ela's very different experiences showed us how there's good and bad that can come from us being so connected and putting ourselves out there for anyone in particular. But what happens when you start surveilling yourself for one person or group? That's what Hassan Alahi did after being subjected to baseless interrogations and surveillance by the FBI following September 11th. He started calling or emailing an FBI agent every single day. Basically, my work in surveillance, I, I never actually intended on going into this field. It kind of was uh, kind of thrown on me, if you want to say. So shortly after 9-11, I was erroneously reported as a terrorist. There was a report that an Arab man had fled who was hoarding explosives. Now, never mind, I'm not Arab. I'm Muslim, but I'm not Arab. But, you know, we were dealing with this era of, like, if you have a Muslim name, then you must be Arab. And if you're, and if you're Arab, you must have explosives. I mean, you know, it sounds as ridiculous as it sounds right now. That was the basis for our national policy. And that is what basically got me into uh, my work in dealing with surveillance and having to spend six months of my life with the FBI, justifying every moment of my existence. And then basically at that moment, I decided to open it all up. Uh, I decided to tell the FBI everything, but I also decided to tell the public everything in addition. And by telling the public, it really, you know, at that time, it was a bizarre thing because people were like, 
why are you doing this? Who wants to, why do you want to tell everybody what you're eating for lunch and where you're sleeping and what you're doing in this place and that place? And now people look at my uh, project 20, nearly 20 years later, and they're like, I don't get it. What's the big deal? This looks like my Instagram feed. So uh, I do want to talk a little bit about surveillance. Can you define what surveillance is in your own words and maybe give us a few examples about it? Historically, we're looking at surveillance as these types of big structures. You know, the idea of big brother, everything's being watched from above. Uh, whereas surveillance is the thousands and thousands and thousands of cell phones that are at any p- public event. We're, we're watching the watchers. We're watching the police. We're watching from below, and there's thousands of these cameras rather than one central power structure looking down. We have seen the cell phone video completely transform our society. I mean, it's not that all of a sudden we're starting seeing police uh, killings of, of black and brown bodies, but I think what we're seeing is it's now being visible. It's now on camera. So in a lot of ways, if surveillance are the watchers, surveillance is watching the watchers. So you are an artist and <laughs> you have used your personal situations as a, a prompt for investigating things within our society. If you could, could you tell us a bit about your project, Tracking Transients, and how it came to be? Sure. So Tracking Transients started uh, after, I was, uh, after my FBI investigation. The FBI investigation uh, uh, was six months long, and it finally ended with nine consecutive polygraphs in one sitting. I remember that visit very uh, vividly. I'm sitting in this big old chair and this all these like wires coming out of me. And then, you know, it's not like the movies where you get the scratching things and the thing. It's, there's, it's completely the, the, the completely opposite of that. And you're sitting in this big chair and then, and then there's a guy behind and he has a voice like Hal from 2001. It's like, is today Tuesday? Is your name Hassan? Are we in Florida? So basically, they ask you these basic questions to stand, to get because you can only answer yes or no. So they get the baseline questions. And then they go, do you belong to any groups that wish to harm the United States? That gets a little tricky working as an academic. <laughs> you know, so we, got, we got certain things at universities that we're not really sure. Uh, I, I don't know. I was like, man, you might want to just ask my colleagues that directly rather than have me speak for them. But anyway, so the, the big picture is that, so after this whole thing happened, I remember one of the FBI agents going, you know, you haven't been traveling much lately. And I was traveling all the time because you know, as an artist, you're just going wherever there's work. And um, I was like, would you be traveling if you were me? You guys have been on me for the last six months and you expect me to travel anywhere outside the U.S.? And then at the end of, of the whole thing, I mean, my other FBI agent comes in and he says, everything's okay. Everything's great. I was like, I know everything's been fine. It's like, because, but can I get a letter saying everything's okay? And uh, there's a little problem here because, again, going back to the legal system, you can't be not guilty of something you never did. Uh, there, were no, there was nothing formal. There were no official anything. This is all extrajudicial. So at that moment, I said, uh, guys, uh, can, I get, can, I, can I get something that says I'm okay? And they're like, well, here's some phone numbers. Give us a call. If you get into trouble, we'll take care of it. So ever since then, I'd call my FBI agent, tell him where I was going, what I was doing. Not because I had to, but because I chose to. I opted in. I opted in and decided preemptively to tell my FBI agent where I was going and what I was doing. 
And that then turned to the email, the phone calls turned to emails, the emails turned to these websites that I would make for my FBI agent with all sorts of details of where I was hanging out and what I was doing and who I was with and all sorts of things. And then, you know, I would write these really, really, really long emails and he would always say, thank you, be safe. You know, I felt kind of like, you know, here I'm like pouring my heart out and like kind of think I'm making a connection here, telling him all sorts of details of everything. And he's like, thank you, be safe. Four words. I mean, it was like, I felt kind of jilted. I thought we had a relationship going here. You know, it's like, you've been with me for the last six months. All of a sudden you just want to communicate back with just four words. So I decided, you know, at that moment, I was like, well, why is he so special? Why is it just this one, one guy special? Why don't I just open this up to everybody? And that's when I started creating this website. So every few moments I was moving everywhere, I would move to go to a new location. There'd be a new photo and a new map of how to get to where I was. Uh, I mean, and there'd be photos of what I was doing. There'd be, people would be looking at me weird, like, hey, why are you taking pictures of your lunch? And of course, now people look at you weird if you don't do it. Uh, so, you know, so it was all of these huge things. It's these huge cultural changes that have happened. It's kind of funny to think about how much we've changed in those times. But all of these thousands and thousands and thousands, I think uh, I last counted, there's about 160,000 images in the database that I generated. And they're all these really anonymous images. They could be anybody. Not, and none of them have me in it. None of them have any people in it. Or very few. Sometimes the people are just incidental on some of the images. But you know, you're looking at this work, and and you're like, well, why am I looking at this empty hallway? Why am I looking at this empty train station? Why am I looking at this uh, this abandoned whatever? You know, just because you know, I feel like you know, no, it's not that. It's not that because my soul is empty. You know, but it's basically because it's it's there's no one there because I want the viewer to do the work of the investigator of actually going through and then being able to insert themselves. This could be me. So first they go, they, they start being the investigator, the FBI agent, and then they reverse into the subject. You really have raised so many, I think, important points about how surveillance and monitoring as a whole has impacted our society. I think pointing this conversation back to social media there is this notion that going viral is like the holy grail of the social media experience. And so I wonder with someone who has had attention and attention that has not always been the nicest attention, uh, what do you think about this aspect of going viral in this day and age? You know, this is interesting because uh, I was just very, very casually talking to somebody and so-and-so was talking about some other artist and they're saying, oh, you know, but that artist has like so many thousands and thousands of followers as if that's a metric of success. You know, the fact that the number of followers is now, is now your social standing within certain fields. And uh, I think, you know, it goes back to this thing. Look, in, in traditional media, in the traditional media, and for many of us, and I grew up in that era where we went from broadcast television to cable television. I was in, the, you know, and and many of us that were that have lived that. Uh, if you think about it, you know, broadcast television was actually pretty crappy. I mean, there were like three or four channels. There were X number of hours. There were X number of you know programming. There was news. There was X number of programming. There were sitcoms. There were X number of programming. So try to break into that was nearly impossible. It was nearly impossible because the gate there were so the, the gatekeeping was so rigid, and you actually had to 
and you had to conform your work to a specific material and to a specific media and to a specific format and to a specific audience, which was this basically, and this is how we got things like Leave it to Beaver and the Brady Bunch. You know, this is what we got of Americana, as we call it. But as we know, many of us, we were never thought of during that Americana. I have this obsession of watching old game shows and I cannot believe like how I don't see a single person of color for hours on these game shows from the 1970s. What, did we just not exist? Yeah, yeah, we did not exist in the media. Uh, we certainly existed in the population, but we certainly did not exist in the media's eyes. So again, I don't think of this whole social media viral thing as a negative because it has removed those gatekeepers. It has taken them away and it's actually allowed us to find the audience. There was a time when we needed to be in specific places and specific contexts for to be discovered. Now we can do it from our living room or bedroom or wherever. You know, yes, there is an obsession of fame that I think a lot of, lot of personalities, a lot of people have. But that has always existed. That, you know, the person wanting to be the movie star, the person wanting to be the, 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 you know, the, the famous musician, this has always existed. It's just that now that we have a very, you know, in the past, they were like 12 possible venues and, you know, and 100 gatekeepers along the way. And now there's like 50 million possible venues or 50 billion venues. So, again, I think there's a there's a disruption to the system that's taking place there that the traditional media is very uncomfortable with. Okay, that does it for us today. Until next time. Think about who you're watching and who is watching you. Tracked and Traced is hosted by Antoine Scott and Natasha T. Miller. Today's episode was produced by David Lyons with reporting from Shanmin Sultana and editing by David Lyons and David Weinberg. With Vox Pops from the Science Gallery mediator team Harrison Adams, Aliomel Avila Sanchez, and Caroline White. With mixing, mastering, and original music by Sam Bobian. Tracked and Traced is a collaboration between MSU Science Gallery and WDET, Detroit's NPR station. The support from the Pulitzer Center, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, and MSU FCU. 